It says I'm I'm spotlighted. Um, I hope everybody can still see me. Yeah, we can see you. Right. Okay. Uh As as we've discovered, <laughs> this is an experiment. <laughs> so uh, we'll we'll just see see how things go along. Uh, it's the, the video there was th this week we're in uh, a series called Vikingdom Come that's been sponsored particularly by the Church of England. And there's mm -hmm. quite a nice you can you can have a look at that song on YouTube or whatever. It's got Lou Fellingham and people in it uh, where they are uh, really just um, it, the chorus line. Uh, it go, goes to the tune of Abide With Me. But the chorus line talks about uh, um, revive and uh, heal our land, uh, and uh, and it and I guess I I would want to say that it you know it begins with me. Um, that that particular song doesn't make that clear, but that's the the essence of it. Anyway, uh, it's good to be with you and to share some of what. God has laid on my heart for uh, this evening. Those of you who have not met me before, I'm Ian and I'm married to Barbara and we are both retired teachers uh, living here in Devon. Uh, we taught for many years in a prep school in Maidenhead, Berkshire, and we have three children and four grandchildren who range from 14 uh, to 20. Uh, the eldest granddaughter is actually here at Exeter University, which would be quite fun if we could get to see her. <laughs> so currently we, we live in Exeter and we worship at uh, Belmont Chapel, a free evangelical church in the city centre. And you may have seen Belmont mentioned in this week's uh, Songs of Praise. We were, we were on yeah. showing some of the things that we, we do in the city. Uh, our association with these gatherings goes back, whoa, um, many years. And in fact, Barbara and I attended one of Roy Hessian's house parties in Clevedon uh, the week after our honeymoon. <laughs> uh, in this Bible reading, I can't promise you a definitive study of a Bible book or character but I have chosen a theme around which I will hang my thoughts and hope that that might help us uh, in our day-to-day -day Christian lives. So my theme is living differently and uh, I'm trying to answer the question really, what does it mean to live out our lives as Christians in today's world? And I got that idea, that thought from Ephesians chapter four. And you might like to turn to that, Ephesians chapter four, and I'll read uh, from verse 17. So that's Ephesians four and verse 17 says this. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thinking. 
they're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul calls on his readers not to live as the Gentiles lived, but to remember that they were made new in Christ. In other words, he's contrasting the lives of the Ephesians before they heard about Jesus and their new lives as followers of the way, Christians. They had a former way of life, but now they were to live differently. Now, Gentiles were Jews and Gen uh, uh, <coughs> Gentiles were not Jews. And generally, they were seen to be without God and without hope and due for ultimate judgment. And we see that thought in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says this, Psalm 1 and Verse one, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted in streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like the chaff the wind that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. This was a, a straightforward idea for the Jews. They followed the one true God and his laws, the Ten Commandments. Everyone else was a Gentile and foreigners lost, wicked, and therefore to be judged. Interestingly, uh, today, uh, that is a view that various other religious groups uh, seem to hold. However, whilst the Jews remain a special people to, to whom God revealed himself throughout history, the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament assert that all are called to follow the one true God, whose life and work is expressed in the Gospels. Acts chapter 2 verse 21 says this, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in Romans 10 verse 9, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. 
everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And both Timothy and Titus say the same thing. Timothy says, I urge you for petitions and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those authority in authority, that, that we may live peacefully and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That was 2 Timothy uh, verse 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 and Titus 2 verse 11 says the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people so if there's no division of the good and the wicked based on uh, race and inheritance who is good and who is wicked we have a pretty good idea of morality, at least here in the UK. We can quickly list a whole uh, raft of things that are generally seen to be bad or wicked. Perhaps murder, child pornography, abuse. Uh, I'm sure you can uh, add many things to that list. And we can safely say that it's good to do things like give to charities, help the poor, feed and house the homeless and, and work for uh, world peace. I wonder where we would put ourselves on the scale of one to 10, with one being very bad and wicked and 10 being very good. Well, most people would say they're not in the lower section, uh, one to five, uh, people down there are, are, are not very nice. And yes, uh, I'm not a saint. So we would say, well, that rules out being number 10. On average, most of us probably view ourselves somewhere in the 7.5 uh, area on the scale. Fairly good overall, enough to get by, and certainly good enough to be considered an okay sort of person. Maybe we feel like the psalmist in, in Psalm 1. I'm going to read uh, a bit of, sorry, Psalm 5. I'm going to read a bit of Psalm 5. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray in the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. For you're not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. And on to verse 12. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favour as with a shield. But how can we be sure that we end up righteous and not wicked? Well, God's standard of morality does not work on a scale of one to 10. Indeed, the slightest failure to keep his laws qualifies us for 
for judgment. And the fact that, uh, in fact, the Bible tells us that nobody's been able to meet that standard except Jesus, that is. Romans 3.23 tells us there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Well, you may say I've, I've generally kept the Ten Commandments, uh, and these, of course, represented morality for Christian and non-Christian alike. One of our favourite places uh, to take visit visitors in the summer is up to Buckland in the Moor. And here, high up on Dartmoor, there's a set of rocks where in 1928, a local landowner uh, paid for someone to chisel out the Ten Commandments on two massive slabs of granite. It's as if they stand there and rule over all that can be seen below, reaching even to the sea in the distance. However, what, what do we find Jesus saying about the law, about those commandments? He says in Matthew 5, in verse 17, he says this, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law till everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices and teach these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not see the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And further on in this chapter, in verse 27 of Matthew 5, Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. So if we're serious about God's standards, who can stand? In fact, a Bath University study showed that 95% of those surveyed suffered from guilt in one way or another. In our hearts, we really know that we fail. In the Old Testament, God made provision for people to be forgiven, for this guilt to be taken away. And it's interesting that Leviticus talks time after time of sins committed unintentionally. 
But when the person realizes their guilt, they are to bring a sin offering. And this would be a sacrifice of an animal and always involved the shedding and sprinkling of blood. In Leviticus chapter 16, we find the instructions for the Day of Atonement. On a particular day each year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, that section of the tabernacle where the presence of God was deemed to rest. Here the cloud and the fire rested. Here was the Ark of the Covenant. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make a sacrifice of a bull for himself and select two goats, one which would be a sacrifice for the sins of the people. The blood of both sacrifices would be sprinkled on the altar for cleansing and then within the Holy of Holies on the Ark, the atonement cover, the mercy seat. Aaron would then lay his hands on the remaining goat and confessing the sins of the people, send it out into the wilderness as a sign that their sins were removed from them. The Jews remember that first Passover when to avoid the judgment of the angel of death, a lamb was killed and its blood sprinkled on the doorposts of the house. We of course remember Easter for the death of Jesus on the cross and his rising from the dead. And in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus himself in that last Passover meal with the disciples links his own story with this imagery from the past. He speaks of his body and his blood given for a new covenant that would encompass all people for all time. We get a foretaste of that in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 says this, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is done, is uh, silent so he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away yet who of his generation protested for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people he was punished he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. 
Yes, there is a way to be found righteous. Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter three, you must be born again. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must, must be lifted up that everybody who believes in him might have eternal life. Now, that was the story in Numbers 21, when the Israelites became impatient with Moses and with God, and God sent a plague of poisonous snakes to punish them. They did realise their sin, and God gave Moses a remedy. Look up at a bronze snake that was lifted up on a pole and live. John goes on to write, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. So Jesus is the one who is lifted up. He is the one who has the cure for our guilt. Jesus is the one who gives us righteousness. So where are you? Have you made that decision to give your life to Jesus? I hope so. And like me, have you decided to follow Jesus? And that being the case, are we up for living our lives differently from the rest of the world? You see, this was Paul's plea to the Ephesians. It seems they were slipping back into their old ways. Shape up, he says, and, and, and get with the program. Uh, Jesus put it like this in, in Matthew 5, uh, talking to his disciples. Well, that's talking to us, isn't it? Matthew 5 and verse 13. Verse 13 of Matthew 5 says, you are the salt of the earth. That's you and me. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how could it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And then he says, you, that's you and me, are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Before the advent of fridges and freezers, salt was an essential preservative. In Jesus's day, it would have been a very important item for fishing, fishermen. And I remember on a trip to the Holy Land, uh, going up to Masada, where Herod had a palace and the archaeologists there had uncovered massive storerooms where were stockpiled salted meat and fish against the possibilities of a siege 
when he was there. He was always fearful that somebody would try and come and, and bump him off. And they, he wanted to be safe and have lots of provisions. Roman soldiers at one time were paid in salt. And that's where we get our word salary. It was a key in the battle against decay. Jesus says we are to be salt. But are we? Looking at today's world, we see falling standards of morality, marriages in decline, sex is every day flaunted, business is king. You only have to look at the skyline uh, to see that cities that once boasted churches and cathedrals now are dwarfed by tower blocks, shards, gherkins, a plethora of commercial profit-making buildings. Customer service takes second place to profits. Credit is made so easy that debt quickly follows. Our society is in decay and we almost inevitably go along with it. We have a, a comfortable Jesus. We have church, Bible studies, regular giving, but how salty are we at work, down the pub, the running club, or the gym? Do these folk know that we are Christians? Do we disagree with the conversations that we're involved in where everyone's just moaning on and putting people down? The questionable jokes, the innuendo, or when we're undercharged, we might well say, oh, well, it's the fault of the shop. I can remember we put in a, uh, an order for some new cushions at home here. And these were from uh, uh, Marks and Spencers. And when they arrived, we unpacked this box because I think there were six cushions. And we were taking them all out and found that inside the box, was long, along with the six cushions, there was a lovely, uh, comfy throw. And I looked through all the paperwork thinking, uh, is this, uh, you know, is this a, a special treat? Thank you very much for making a, 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 a large order. Um, but there was nothing there. So I, I rang up Marks and Spencers and they said, oh, no. Um, you, we don't know how that got in there. You weren't, you weren't supposed to get a throw. So uh, what was I to do? What were we to do? And we decided the right thing to do was to uh, send it back. So I asked them, can I send it back? And they said, well, yes, um, you know, you can take it to a, parcel it up, take it to a post office. And, uh, but you could just take it into the shop. So that's what we did. We took this throw down to Marks and Spencers in the city centre and took it to the uh, area where you do orders and returns and so on um, and said, look, we've got this by mistake. Um, it came in with our cushions. Um, but, you know, they didn't know what to do. They had absolutely no procedure in their computer system 
to take back something that somebody shouldn't have had. They could have swapped it or refunded for it, or but they they didn't know. And in the end, I just said, well, <laughs> there you are. That's your problem. I'm bringing it back. What about what about the TV we watch? There are so many things on the television at the moment, these reality shows that basically they just glorify uh, greed, uh, nudity, sex, the willingness to put other people down in competition. They say it's all in the name of good competition, but it's, it's really just uh, appealing to many, many cases, our, our lower nature and uh, being a bit like those Ephesians, particularly over things that we, we watch on the telly, I think. Matthew 6, 22 says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Then the light within you is darkness. How great is that darkness? How easy it is to slip in and conform to those around us. Salt then is a actor against decay. It counteracts sin if we're salty. And light shows the gospel. Philippians 2 uh, verses 14 and 15 say this, Philippians 2, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? No grumbling. How we like to have a moan, don't we? No grumbling so that we might shine. Galatians 5, you'll know this, verse 22 says this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Paul says, keep in step. This rather implies, doesn't it, that we can get out of step. In Colossians, he talks of us clothing ourselves with that patience. Colossians 3 verse 12 says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and 
patience, bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you have, has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I don't know about you, but when I get up in the morning, uh, I have to choose what to wear. Well, I do that very quickly and very often pick up the things that I've worn the previous day. <laughs> but uh, Barbara takes a lot longer uh, to get dressed than I do. In fact, we we went out, uh, was it, it was yesterday, where we went out yesterday uh, for the first time and we booked a table at a restaurant we liked uh, where they look after things very well and we were in a, a separate booth and it was brilliant. Um, and we dressed up. Um, well, I knew I was dressed in about five minutes and Barbara took about five, no, not that long, but uh, a considerable time choosing what she was going to wear. And while she was doing it, she said, oh, we've got some friends coming on Saturday. What do you think about if I wore this then, or uh, shall I wear this uh, top? Or <laughs> um, So she spends a lot of time thinking about what she's going to wear. Paul says, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We sometimes have to choose what to do. We have to choose to do the right thing. But if we get out of step, when the Spirit tells us, then we know, don't we, that we have to get back into back in sync. This last week, I heard a sermon in which the preacher owned up to his own lack of love, care, anger, and all the other little things that are real in our lives day by day. He likened this to grit that gets into the working of an engine that spoils its performance. This can be overcome by love that acts as a, an oil to smooth things out. That's what he said. Well, we may indeed need love to get along with others who show perhaps these attributes towards us. But the grit in our own lives is nothing but sin. And we need to recognize that as such. We need to repent of our cross thoughts, our anger, name it for what it is. It's sin. And we come to the cross and ask for forgiveness and trust in the power of the blood of Jesus to forgive and cleanse. You'll know these verses in 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Just like Paul writing to the Ephesians, Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, your God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are righteous. We are chosen. And may we day by day shine and proclaim the promises of him who saved us. Well, thank you for listening. There's now going to be some breakout rooms for a time of sharing 